this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. During my first few weeks at college, I concocted one of those dumb ideas that you get when you suddenly have the freedom of an adult without the wisdom of one. My new doormates and I would go undercover, as it were, and spend a day as prospective students at the famous evangelical college down the road, Bob Jones University. Since we'd arrived in Greenville, South Carolina, we'd heard all sorts of rumors about Bob Jones that you weren't allowed to go out on a date without a chaperone, that the only place on campus men and women could mingle was a giant gymnasium filled with couches, and that you had to keep a couch cushion between you and the other person sitting next to you, presumably to block the demonic energy radiating from his or her genitals. And, as if this precaution weren't enough, this gym was spotted with lifeguard chairs in which guards kept a wary eye out for the slightest chastity infraction. We imagined the guards had whistles and Ray-Bans. So we went, and, as you can imagine, found nothing much out of the ordinary. Our tour guides were welcoming, the campus was well-kept, the classrooms and dorms were spacious and inviting, and the student body, far from radiating religious zeal or sexual repression, looked pretty much like the one we'd just left, perhaps a little more friendly. We didn't see the mythic gymnasium, and no one ran around with a Bible beating men and women away from one another. We were, of course, disappointed. As boneheaded as we were back then, I do think our undercover adventure stems from a curiosity shared by many of us who aren't a part of the evangelical church. What's life really like in that community? We might have heard about the alternative colleges and preschools, the prayer circles and the megachurches, but really, what's the appeal? This curiosity is all the more odd given that anywhere from a quarter to over a third of Americans identify themselves as evangelical, depending on which study you consult. It seems the evangelical-non-evangelical divide is just one of the many that currently mark our much-divided country. And now, we have Erica Ray's new memoir, Evangelical. In it, Ray accomplishes a dual feat. She gives those of us outside the evangelical church a first-hand account of growing up within it, of its values and beliefs, of what it's like to go to a youth group or attend the evangelical alternative to prom. She even includes a pithy guide to churchies that gives us the evangelical take on such terms as altar call, Christian alternative, or sexual immorality. If it's sexual, it's immoral. But more importantly, Ray gives us a coming-of-age story, a story that's at times hilarious and at times poignant. Ray captures that struggle we all know, and that may be even harder than fending off the demons that lurk in a Ouija board or in rock and roll music. Growing up.
Erica Ray, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Eric. I'm happy to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. And it was a pleasure to read your new book, Evangelical: a memoir. And uh, I would love to start jumping in and talking about it, but I want to give uh, our listeners a little bit of a background um, about what brought you to this project and how you ended up writing this particular memoir. Okay. Um, Well, just to give you a little bit of background about me, I grew up in, uh, well, I went to my high school years in Colorado Springs and uh, grew up in a very heavy evangelical community. Um, After that, I went to the University of Hong Kong and lived on a small expat island uh, after to do my graduate studies after I had finished up with college um, and kind of had some stark realizations about myself and my faith and uh, started looking back on my life and and found a lot of interesting um, things that that I found myself laughing at more than anything. So you could kind of say it was a crisis of faith that I dealt with uh, through laughter. So that sounds like the best way to deal with any particular crisis. <laughs> well, I think, you know, we all have them. There's something about just making it to adulthood that makes you think, how did I get here and what just happened to me? Um, it's not everybody that goes back, though, and does a, a memoir about that. Uh, what brought you to the writing side of this? Well, I've always loved to write. And, you know, I'll tell you, living in Hong Kong, I lived on this little island surrounded by Europeans. And um, really, of course, they had no idea what I was talking about when I told them about going to Christian rock concerts and um, going to Christian movie night, Christian roller skating, uh, and, you know, watching muscle men bending rebar in their teeth in the name of Jesus. And they just looked at me like I was absolutely crazy. Um, And and I realized after a while it it was completely... uh, unusual for a lot of people. So I started to sort of separate myself or trying to separate from myself as best I could from my past and just kind of jotting down some of these memories. And I I found in doing that and in talking to my friends that we were laughing more than anything. And I found that it was quite a healthy thing. So I just used the writing as a medium to get it out on paper. And it does seem as I've finished the book that I, I, I kind of I've had a chance to tell some friends what it's about. And, you know, they say, well, the evangelical, I've never heard of that. And we'll have to ask you about the title in a moment. Um, but it does seem it's, it's part reckoning um, with the coming of age and that it is part of this sort of an insider's take for outsiders on the evangelical community and faith. You know, I started writing this almost as a handbook, um, you know, with with a definition at at each uh, chapter head, trying to explain to people who were not raised evangelical uh, where where we were coming from. And, you know, 35% of the United States self-identifies as evangelical. So it's actually a really large community. It's ahead of the Catholics, which is uh, 26% of our makeup. And um, but I but I think people who were not raised in it, it's it's like looking into a foreign culture. I, I you know, and, and you can look back in the the political clashes over the last election. You can really see where that was coming <laughs> to play. So I, I thought it would be kind of fun as sort of an explanation to help people understand as sort of a vehicle for understanding. So what I love about the book is that it begins at the end of the world. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think that's one thing that um, maybe people on the outside don't necessarily understand about the evangelical culture. Um, and I should say a lot of the evangelical culture, because certainly it's not true straight across the board. There are over a thousand different denominations that make up the evangelical uh, thought stream. But a lot of us felt 
or felt like that any moment Jesus was going to return and that the end of the world was coming. Um, there's also, you know, the idea that if you were to die now, are you going to heaven or hell? So it's a very prominent idea when, um, when you're in that community about, about basically this is only a temporary situation that we're in right now. So starting the book at that point, I thought was kind of fun because I think it helps um, maybe just set the stage of where I'm coming from, because certainly that was something I thought about every day, my own mortality and where I was going and had I blown it yet. (laughs) Well, I guess we'll all find out at some point. (laughs) I guess that's true. Well, I think one of the the challenges that you faced in the memoir that you you pull off quite nicely um, is that you're not only offering readers a chance into to what you call the the evangelical thought stream or what we might call it a psychology, but then you have to deal with capturing an adolescent psychology as well and how those two things come together. Um, <laughs> And that, that, you know, to, to imagine someone at, at 14 or 15 imagining the end of the world is a very different thing from imagining a theological stance on the end of the world. It's such a toxic combination, isn't it? I mean, when you're a teenager, you're already immortal in your own mind, right? I mean, nothing's going to get you. Absolutely. Um, Death doesn't so, exist. Right. So when you add the, add to that the idea that, um, you know, even if you die now, you're still immortal. Or if, um, you know, if Jesus came back this second, um, then you don't even have to die, which is something that you're kind of in line with anyway. You can kind of skip that part and uh, with the rapture get swooped up to heaven. So uh, as a teenager, I think that the the outcome of that can be quite radical. <laughs> At least it was in my case. So... One of the, the the things that we associate most often with sort of a teen coming of age is the teen rebellion, mm-hmm. and yours takes on quite an interesting tenor in this particular one. You know, there's there's not so much the nose piercing um, or the <laughs> tiny skirt or anything like that. Though the cover of the book is a little bit uh, risque. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but but that might be one place to, to to bring this into relief about you know how how this sort of teenagehood is different from uh, perhaps what we notice at the mall on any given day. <laughs> right. Um, well, I think that my generation, um, especially Generation X, we were um, it, especially in the late '80s, early '90s, we were all about being uh, rad, or I should say, our generation within the church. We were very uh, interested in being. Uh, radical for Jesus and focusing all of our um, all of our rebellion basically on society and, and pushing it in, instead on um, you know we were rebelling from society but not Jesus so I remember we used to say um, Jesus doesn't make freaks out of people he makes people out of freaks that was one of our mantras that we used to say and and we lived that now having um, you know, when you, when you talk about mixing the teenage years into that, I mean, obviously, and you mentioned the the risque cover on the book. You know, part of that is is a direct um, kind of addressing of sexuality in the church and how we were refocusing that. And um, I've kind of joked in the book how uh, you know we we used youth group almost as a replacement for sex. <laughs> 
um, we were trying and we were trying to uh, be hot for God, not each other, you know, and basically um, take all of those passions and those crazy emotions and hormones and move it on to this radical relationship with Jesus. And um, certainly you see that, you know, in these churches that do the purity pledges, you know. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, well, it, it might be interesting for those of us who didn't grow up inside the church to, to hear a little bit about what the youth group is. I think one of the things I noticed is that um, at certain points you're giving us a kind of, you know, first person, here was my experience. And at other points, you're describing it somewhat as an anthropologist. You know, first we take all these teenagers and we run them as hard as we can to wear them out. And then they're ready to hear, you know, the evangelical message of faith or hope um, or don't be touching each other in the back of cars, whatever it turns out to be. Um, but how does that, the, the youth group, um, function within the, the larger evangelical culture? Oh, that's funny. Um, well, certainly, I mean, you know, one of the things that is pretty much understood is that you have to capture the hearts of the teens um, if you ever want those teenagers to become members of the church. And, you know, you need members of the church to keep it going. So the idea is, you know, you, you really have to be radical and relatable. And that's one of the things about the evangelical culture that is um, a little unique, say, from um, the Orthodox culture. Uh, there's all these relatable activities. So so basically, we, we'd go into a youth group night, um, which at our church was on Wednesday night, and um, they would. They'd run us like horses in there. I mean, we'd have so many games and um, throwing whipped cream at each other and blending unthinkable things up in the blender and seeing who could chug it the fastest, like raw fish or baby food. I mean, it was just, um, it was crazy. And it was, you know, it was fun. It was terrible. It was really fun. And as teenagers, you know, you do these um, crazy things anyway. So you always end and you do these, these contests. And then by the time you're done with it, you're kind of just panting and you're exhausted. And of course you're going to pretty much listen to whatever your leader tells you at that point. <laughs> you know, there's no room for objection or thinking about anything else because you're just ready to sit down. Yeah. I, I'm starting to think that maybe I should do this with my students when I'm, especially when spring comes along, just go yeah. run them and then they'll be ready to sit down and listen to a lecture on Shakespeare or something like that. Hey, it works. It works. I'm living testimony. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So, um, I think maybe this would be a good moment to step back and uh, give us a sense of, you know, this is a book about growing up in the the evangelical church, and the title is Devangelical. Um, so could you give us a little sense of, of what that means and how that takes us into the book? Yeah. Um, you know, I use the term devangelical to, to just describe how I found myself suddenly outside of the church. Um, it's not meant as a judgment against the church, um, you know, as, as some kind of smear campaign or anything like that. It's more of um, here I was, you know, growing up in a postmodern era. Um, I grew up completely very radical, um, very good little Christian girl. And all of a sudden I found myself outside of it. And I was kind of stunned and scared and guilty. And I was basically just trying to figure out what happened, um, what went wrong. So um, anyway, that that's where the, that title came from. And uh, yeah, 
I mean, one of the things I think that, that's important to, to give listeners a sense of it when they encounter the book, and I hope they do, um, is that this isn't an expose about the evangelical church. Um, it's written with great sympathy toward that community and a kind of um, very, very mixed, bittersweet attitude towards your own upbringing. Yeah. And I would add to that, you know, um, I read a Pew Research survey recently that said that about six million people in the U.S. have left the evangelical church in the last five years or so. You know, and, and I guess I'm one of them. And, you know, I'm just trying to retrace what happened, what went wrong, what's not working. You know, and I think it's a larger conversation that can be had with the church. And I would love to have it with people in the church because I think it needs to be had. Um, it's not something I want people to, you know, make a mass bailout on the church. Um, what I'd like to see is have it fixed, you know, and figure out what's going wrong. Yeah. And, uh, as the as the memoir unfolds, it's written from the perspective of of both you in your teens and uh, in your your early twenties, but it's also written from the perspective of you know the adult narrator looking back now, um, mm. and it moves back and forth between those two. And what what I what comes across is that it seems that there are kind of recurrent things that trouble your relationship with the church a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we can talk a little bit about them. For instance, uh, I would invite listeners right now to think about what they were doing at 19, and then we'll ask what you were doing at 19. <laughs> um, and then, you know, there, there are, are big events that kind of become crux points, like the Oklahoma City bombing of 1995. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, there's, there's so many things that I kind of pointed to along the way. Um, you know, just as kind of a brief sort of history, I mean, the sort of things I was doing. Um, one of my favorite chapters in the book talks about an exorcism I tried to perform on one of my goth friends at church camp. <laughs> and um, that was a, a fascinating experience. And, you know, I, I, uh, I'm not sure I know too many other people who went through an exorcism, but in the evangelical world, um, it's not like what you might see, you know, in the Catholic world where there are exorcism rites or that sort of thing. It's more or less just kind of trying to order a demon out in the name of Jesus, you know, and and then watching the person flop around on the floor, or in my case, she flopped around on the the cabin beds and the bunk beds, um, you know, and, and just trying to trying to retrace what that was and what happened and was that real. And there are so many questions I have because, you know, um, angels and demons themselves played such a large role in my mind at that time. And I look back and um, I spent a lot of time trying to talk to them. They never talked back. I'm not sure why. (laughs) It wasn't for lack of trying, I bet. No, I remember sitting in my room at night, you know, and, and saying, okay, I know you're in here. I want to see you. You know, I say, I'm going to open my eyes and the count of three, one, two, three. And then there'd be nothing there and be like, okay, well, (laughs) but I never doubted it. I still, I still knew, I just knew there was an angel on one side, a demon on another, and they were fighting for my soul every minute of the day. And you do give a sense of of what it would be like to be, you know, an adult coming of age with this sense of a cosmology that, you know, you weren't just in the room alone at any given moment. Um, And there's one of my favorite passages is the the difficulty of the limited number of angels that can be there to protect you at any given moment. (laughs) Right. Well, right. Um, You know, when you 
the Bible, of course, never gives any numbers, but it talks about how a third of the angels were thrown down to the earth as demons. So, you know, if you try to extrapolate from that and figure out, you know, what your odds are of succeeding on a certain thing based on how many angels versus how many demons are freed up at any moment. And and I think like this is a, a perfect instance to, to to highlight the the way in which you're balancing these two perspectives and and giving us this kind of first person view of what it's like to be you know an adolescent with this worldview and then also the adult because there's a another moment at the book where where you kind of become the uh, the biblical scholar and give us um, a fascinating lesson on the word hell as it appears. Could you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> sure. One of my favorite topics, hell. Um, you know, I, I grew up with hell. Isn't there a line that says, I love hell? I love hell. Yeah, absolutely. And I, mostly because I love to hate hell um, because it's the thing that motivated me for so very long. You know, if I did this, then I would go to hell or um, I needed to be saving people so that they would not go to hell. I mean, that was such a prominent thought. Um you know, and, and knowing that I was right, or thinking I knew I was right, um, and that I wasn't going there. I mean, that's such a freeing thought. But um, you know, I, I, w- I went to the I went to the University of Hong Kong. I think I mentioned that um, I did my MA there. You know, and one of the things I studied there was was linguistics, and it was one of the things that really turned me around in looking at interpretation of the Bible, that sort of thing, and understanding context and you know, basically just interpretation. And I started looking into the word hell and, and I really found a lot of, um, I found that the word was not defined as clear cut as I had thought all my life. And, you know, the first startling thing that I really realized was that there was no hell in the old Testament. And, um, you know, it was, it was all taken out a number of years ago, any references in the English text to the word hell and translated in what it should have been as sheol, which just means the grave. Um, the old Testament, the old Testament people did not see hell, you know, as an eternal punishment place as modern evangelicals do. Um, somewhere along the line that changed, um, I, think it's a little odd that um, our theology seems to indicate that hell um, basically just appeared on the radar right when um, Jesus appeared on the radar. That seems a little odd to me, because if that's the case, then what did he come to save us from exactly? Um, the, the New Testament then goes on to make, depending on the translation, some people say it's between 11 to 14 uh, mentions of the word hell in the Bible. And um, of those... All but one, I believe, are translated from the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is a place. It's an actual place. It still exists. Um, It's outside of the Valley of Hinnon in Jerusalem. And it was used at the time, um, in the time of Jesus, uh, as a trash dump. So it's where there were fire incinerators that were burning all the time and burning the bodies of criminals and, you know, dead animals and trash, basically. And um, so, you know, when when Jesus said it's better to cut your hand off and cast it into the fires of hell um, instead of letting your whole body burn, um, what he actually said was it's better to throw it off and cast it. Uh, it would be better to sorry, it's, it would be better to cast your hand off into the fires of Gehenna, which would have meant an actual place. It would be like talking about just the trash dump, which um, for some reason we have taken in our modern uh, translation to mean an eternal place of punishment. And that clearly wasn't the case when you look at it close up. 
So um, the uh, the other mention of hell I should add to was um, was from just the word Hades, which we all know from our history classes as the Greek afterlife, basically. And again, that was not a place of punishment, um, eternal punishment. It's where everybody went. So, so you know, and, and I just look at that as an adult now, and it just, of course, makes me question. I mean, do I know everything about that topic? Of course not. But it does make me question what it is that we're talking about when we talk about hell in the evangelical church. And I think it needs to be examined closely. It's it's a wonderful passage in the book, uh, and that's certainly not the perspective of hell that's motivating the adolescent Erica. No, no. I was very interested in saving souls. That was my number one mission <laughs> in life. Um, I left my Christian school one year, actually, to do a a witnessing year at the public school for that reason. It was the, it was the year that I thought the rapture was going to happen. It was in 1988. We had a bit of a rapture scare. Yes, the uh, <laughs> the narrator going off to public school after several years in uh, Christian private school is a very nice chapter as well. Um, well, I would say one of the things that also comes up for, for younger you, um, and I guess we need to talk about it, is, is sex. Absolutely. <laughs> um, it's one so of our favorite topics in the evangelical church is sex. Maybe you can <laughs> tell us about what, what, what did happen at 19. <laughs> Well, what happened at 19 was I got married at 19. Um, I had a boyfriend who I had been with since age 14. And um, a lot of the book actually is about how we tried not to have sex and all the uh, creative ways we tried not to have sex. (laughs) Um, So by the time we got to 19... um, and we were a freshman in college. We decided we'd had enough. And if we were actually going to make it and uh, be able to to do things right and not sin, then we had to get married. Yes, so. I, th- I think one of the, the most charming moments for me is when a younger you at the alternative prom comes up with an impromptu chastity pledge that you're asking uh scott who's you know the then boyfriend now husband to sign right at that moment oh yeah oh yeah and it lasts what all of six seconds or something like that that. if that i was so overjoyed he signed it i mean that that spoke volumes now we were very creative in avoiding technical sex (laughs) um you know it's funny i mean a lot of a lot of our sermons were focused on sex certainly um both in college and in high school, the youth pastors, visiting pastors, it was they're very preoccupied that we were keeping ourselves pure. Um, one of my favorite moments was in, was in college when we had a evangelist. We had an evangelist visit us. And he actually handed out cards for us that were color coded that told us how far we were allowed to go. So, like, hand-holding would be green. Um, I can't remember exactly offhand, but, you know, kissing started crossing over into yellow, and then there was orange on up to red, which would, would have been inter- intercourse. So it was kind of color-coded like a Homeland Security sort of chart. But Yes, I, th- I think I remember that the, the threshold was the open-mouth kiss. That's where okay. things started to, to go from green to red. Yeah, yeah. It, it got pretty scary there because it was a slippery slope. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, so one of the, for me, one of the more profound insights or at least explanations that I wasn't uh, aware of that happened in the book is that you talk about this idea of substitution as almost a, 
a mindset or a mode of functioning. And so earlier you had said, you know, youth group substituted as a replacement for sex, more or less. Um, and at, at one point, there's this kind of philosophical reflection on, you know, substitution is almost a way of life. Mm-hmm. You know, that was one of the things that I confronted when I found myself outside of the church more than anything. And that was that I had been substituting a lot of life um, with the church and everything I did was meant as a substitution. And, you know, just as an example of that, I mean, you know, you can take the the obvious little things like cussing, you know, instead of saying, damn, you might say darn, or instead of saying, oh my God, you'd say, oh my word, you know, all those little things that kind of just helped you avoid things. Um, You know, certainly I already mentioned the sex. There's certainly loopholes with that where we were avoiding having intercourse, but we were certainly doing plenty else, Um, you know, but technically not. Um, same thing with the movies. I wasn't allowed to go to, to movie theaters as a kid. Um, so, you know, we'd have videos at home, that sort of thing, or we'd watch our Christian movies. We watched secular movies, too, as long as they were maybe, you know, G-rated Disney-type stuff. Um, you know, but basically we were substituting a lot of things. Not that there's anything wrong with that in particular, but, but what I kind of started um, to realize was that everything I did was with the church, Um you know, I was going to probably anywhere between five to six um, church-related activities a week. A lot of those were chapel sort of things or youth group sort of things, um, as if that were the most important thing I needed to be doing. Um, and basically, just looking at um, all the Christian activities I was doing and seeing how I had distanced myself from people um, outside of the church. And, you know, when I, when I read the words of Jesus in the Bible today, you know, what I see is, is very different. You know, here I see a a guy who was hanging out with, you know, the wrong kind of people, the misfits, so to speak, um, as my author friend J.M. Blaine likes to put it. Um, and basically, you know, what we see there is a lot of, uh, encouraging to help people, you know, to love your neighbor, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and, and what we were doing instead was loving our Christian neighbor. So, you know, we it's like almost I was using, and I think a lot of people, my peers, were using church as a substitute for, for what we thought, for actually what we should have been doing, um, or at least we claimed we were doing. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I think... Uh Hearing you talk right now, it, it takes me to the end of the book. Um, not the very end, but but the part where you've sort of moved out of the church and uh, there, are, there are moments where now the narrator is, is clubbing with other misfits um, rather than going off to Bible study or its equivalent. And, uh, and what I think is admirable about the book is that it doesn't come to any conclusions, any final conclusions. Uh, there are no pat answers when the, the book closes. Um, there's a struggle for a kind of peace and self-acceptance and, uh, you know, I think ultimately a gesture of love toward the community and family. Um, but there's really a kind of intelligence that wants to keep struggling with this. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things that especially in matters of, of belief that we're all looking for is that, that easy answer and the book resists easy answers at the end. Well, I think it, it comes down to that struggle between faith and doubt 
And if you have too much faith, um, it becomes certainty. And certainty doesn't really make make sense on itself. It's no longer faith. Um, Doubt is the same way. You know, if if you doubt too much, then you're absolutely certain that you doubt something, right? So there's this weird kind of balance um, that I find, at least in in my own spiritual journey, um, that you know, since I can't know things, you know, and, and if, if I'm going to have faith, you know, doubt has to be introduced. So it's kind of this, um, I, I guess I've just kind of settled on this um, this juxtaposition between these two concepts. And it's, it's a very uh, uncomfortable place to be in. I would like to be as certain as I once was. But, um, I, you know, like I said, I was raised in a postmodern era, as were you. And it's hard to just accept things hook, line, and sinker anymore. So, um I don't know, my faith has turned more into a hope and it certainly had to be uh, reevaluated and, and probably constantly redefined. But um, I think the most important part, though, is that each of us has the ability and the encouragement to, to look for whatever truth we're looking for on our own without um, the peer pressure of a group telling you what is certain. Nicely said, nicely said. Well, I feel on that heavy note, I've got to make sure that we do justice to the fact that the book is fun and witty and hilarious at moments. And so I'm going to just have to ask you, are you worried at all about what might happen if we play this recording backwards? <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, there's a whole... <laughs> you're alluding to the chapter on backmasking. Sure Absolutely. thing. Yes, we were we were spending a lot of time playing records backwards, listening to the satanic messages, which sounded very um, ominous, although to be, to be <laughs> completely truthful, um, I never really understood what it said unless there was um, a guy telling me in a very dark conspiratorial voice what, <laughs> what was actually being said. So backwards, um, I think Stairway to Heaven says it's fun to smoke marijuana, but I never would have actually heard that had someone not told me that's what it said. <laughs> yes, so. Some of the transliterations you include in the book are quite hilarious in that way. Right. Well, it, it doesn't really actually sound like it's fun to smoke marijuana. It sounds more like um, it's fun scout marijuana. It doesn't really... <laughs> doesn't really translate. So <laughs> as long as you tell me what I said backwards, I'll, I'll believe it. <laughs> sure. Well, we'll run it through and see what we can get. And uh, that might be the most <laughs> unusual interview we've done in a long time. Well, the book is, is written in a, a, a spirit of joy and playfulness. And uh, as much as it hits, um, I think, very serious and, and heartfelt notes, there's a spryness that runs throughout the entire manuscript that's quite <laughs> wonderful. Thank you. It's very readable, you know. I think uh, the first time I read it, I just sat down and I thought, oh, my gosh, I've, I've finished half this thing off and I haven't even stood up. So it's that kind of page turner, which isn't usually what you get with a memoir. <laughs> well, thank you. That's sure funny thing. Here. Well, um, I hope that people get a chance to, to check this book out. And I, I'm just curious now that I've read it of what might be coming. New projects on the horizon? <laughs> Absolutely. Um I can't seem to focus on one thing at a time. So um, I've got two or three things in the fire right now. Um, my my favorite thing I'm working on is a fiction uh, about an entrepreneur in Boulder who is trying to make it during the recession. And he is basically following one of those little business books um, as kind of his own little Bible. So that's kind of fun. Um I'm also a ghostwriter, of course, so I, I work on uh, other people's memoirs. I'm, I'm deeply entrenched in one of those. But uh, I am also working on a sequel to this memoir, though. So, a hoping, sequel? 
a sequel. Yeah. Ah, well, yeah. okay. It probably focuses more on, um, I had kind of a martial arts period after this. So there's a lot of crazy stuff in there in which I uh, find myself forced to beat up an old woman. And um, <laughs> yes, that goes by in one sentence and one yes. thinks, my goodness, there's a story behind it. So I'm glad we're going to get it. <laughs> It's crazy. It's crazy. The twenties were crazy. Yes, the martial arting, mosh pitting uh, is is a strange place for this to end up, but um, it makes right. sense when you follow the journey of the book. Well, the harder they fall, right? I but- guess that's it. Well, Erica Ray, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Eric, for having me. I appreciate it. I hope you'll come back with part two. I do too. My name is Eric Lemay, and you've been listening to Erica Ray author of the memoir Devangelical on the New Books Network.